said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Josh Gonzalez. I want to just ask you to bow your heads with me one more time for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we come before you this morning because we need you, Lord. There are some of us here that truly recognize our need for you. There are some of us here that maybe do not recognize how much we need you. And we ask you, Lord, help us to recognize this this morning. As we open your word, Father, we pray and ask that you speak to us. Lord, we are unable to do anything that we are truly supposed to do, Lord, in the spiritual sense. Even understand spiritual things because we understand that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And for all of this, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit. And so we pray and ask, Lord, speak to us. Do something, Father, in our hearts this morning. Do not let us leave church the same way that we have arrived. We ask for this in your name. Amen. Okay. God's kryptonite. Now, does anyone know what kryptonite is? What it's supposed to be? Sorry? A secret? Okay. Now, someone was up here earlier, the brother that was up here mentioned that when he Googled it, uh, he found out something about Superman. Now, you know, I grew up knowing the story about Superman very well, and many of you probably understand the story of Superman. And you understand, though, that in the story of Superman, there is this element known as kryptonite that has a specific... What's the word? It has a specific... Yeah, ability, power, maybe. It, it does something to Superman. And so we'll get more into that, though, as we get into the message. I, I want to open up in the book of Mark chapter 9. And I'm going to be focusing the story this morning in Mark chapter 9. But before we do that, I just want to give a little bit of context into what is happening before we enter this story in Mark chapter 9. We're going to be reading from verse 14 to 29. But before that, I want to just give you a little bit of context. You see, when we start in Mark chapter 9 in verse 14, we find a chaotic scene taking place. But we need to know what was happening leading up to that to have a proper understanding of what God wants us to see in this story. So when we go back to Mark chapter 8, we see that in Mark chapter 8, Jesus has a conversation with the disciples and he asks them a bunch of questions. And as he's walking with them, he asks them, who do people say that I am? And the disciples respond to Jesus and they say, you know, some say that, you know, you're a prophet and some say that you are Elijah. And they're giving Jesus some responses as to what the people are saying about him. And Jesus turns around and says, OK, very well, but who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter comes forward and utters those words. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is so pleased with Peter's answer that he says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for God is the one that has revealed this to you. And so Jesus, once he establishes with the disciple the fact that they know and understand who he is, that he is the Messiah, he is the Christ, Jesus then for the very first time tells them something that completely brings their world upside down. 
He tells them that he is going to be handed over to the Roman authorities. He is going to be crucified, but on the third day he will rise. You see, even though he had mentioned to them that on the third day he will rise again, they weren't really paying attention to that because they were stuck at the fact that Jesus mentioned he was going to die. You see, our understanding is that the the Jewish people, their expectations of the Messiah was for the Messiah to come and to liberate them. They had been under oppression for so long and now under Roman oppression, they were expecting and hoping for the Messiah to come and liberate them, for the Messiah to establish his kingdom on earth. You know, for everybody in the world to know that God, that their God is the real God and that he is with them. And Jesus turns around and says, they're going to kill me. This completely turned their world upside down. They were confused. They were discouraged. They were even upset because just shortly after that, that's when Jesus reveals this, that Peter then turns around and says, that's not going to happen, Jesus. Like, I won't let that happen, Jesus. And then that's when Jesus says to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, because now Satan is speaking through you, Peter. It's incredible how the human condition can be. That in one second, one moment, we could be saying something God-inspired, And in the very next moment, we're saying something Satan-inspired. It's a good thing God has patience with us, amen? So we need to understand what was happening in the minds of the disciples before we hit this story in Mark chapter 9. We need to understand, you know, the spirit of prophecy tells us that they were exceedingly sorrowful at what Jesus had said to them. It's not what they wanted to hear. And it makes me think, how many times in our Christian experience has things happened to us that was not what we wanted to happen? How many times has God led us down a path that was not the path we wanted to be led down? How many times has God made it clear that he wanted us to go in a direction that we didn't want to go in? And we find the disciples here in a discouraged, sorrowful state. And then they get to a mountain. And then Jesus does something. He says, Peter, James, and John, I want the three of you to come with me. And he takes those three onto that mountain for the night. And the other nine disciples, they stay at the camp that they had made at the base of the mountain. And then he goes with Peter, James, and John. And this is where the Bible tells us is what's called the Mount of Transfiguration experience, where an amazing thing happens. And I I want to encourage you to open your Bible. We're not looking at that this morning in the sermon, but it's a powerful, powerful thing that happens on that mountain. But only three disciples got to go. Now, one of the things that we see about the disciples is that disciples had a lot of issues. One of the issues that the disciples had was they were very competitive with each other. We'd see instances where they would turn around and say, Jesus, which one of us is going to be the one that gets to sit at your right hand when we get to heaven? Jesus, which one? Jesus, which one? Tell us. Tell us, Jesus. Which one? I want it to be me. That's why I'm asking Jesus. You said the disciples were people that God had chosen to do a powerful work, but the disciples were human beings just like us that had issues just like us. They had issues with temper. They had issues with doubt. They had so many different issues that is laid out for us in the Bible to see. And for me, it's beautiful to see that because I can relate to them now. 
I can see how in their struggles and in their weaknesses, how Jesus comes through for them, how he uses them, how he transforms them, how he helps them, how he encourages them. And I find that encouragement myself when I read these things. But why is it important to understand this? Because I want to ask you the question. After they had heard this horrible news, and then even after Jesus had specifically chosen three of the 12 disciples to go up with on the mountain, how do you think those other nine disciples felt that were left behind? What do you think they were doing? That whole night as they were at the camp while Jesus was up on the mountain with Peter, James and John. Do you think they were speaking faithfully and they were saying, you know what, even though Jesus told us this, we're going to have faith and we're going to trust Jesus. And you know what, good on Peter, James and John. Good for them that Jesus chose them to go up on the mountain. Praise God for that. Do you think they were speaking like this? They were murmuring. They were bickering. They were full of doubt. They were discouraged. Why does Peter, James, and John get to go up on the mountain with Jesus and not us? What's so special about these guys? It's like, it's like, does Jesus like them better than he likes us? We need to understand what was going on in the mind of the disciples because the very next morning something incredible happens. And this is where we pick up the story. Join with me in Mark chapter 9 verse 14. The Bible says, and when he came to the disciples, these are the nine that were left behind, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. So Jesus left the nine and they were by themselves the night before. He goes up to the mountain with Peter, James and John. He comes back early the next morning and he finds a chaotic scene taking place. The Bible says there are multitudes of people there. And on top of that, he sees the scribes arguing with them. Immediately, the Bible says, when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. That pretty much tells us that those people were really there to see Jesus. But the scribes were arguing with them. And we need to try to understand what was happening here. Now, this These stories in the Bible, they're very deep. They're full of so much information for us to extract. We need to be prayerful when we read the Bible. Amen. We need to ask God to reveal to us what he wants us to know. The multitudes were looking for Jesus, but the scribes were there disputing with them. When they saw Jesus, they all ran And they greeted him. Jesus' response is this. He asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Now, obviously, the scribes were there not for the right reasons. You see, the multitudes followed Jesus because in Jesus they saw someone in whom they had hope. They saw someone in whom there was something different about him. You know, Jesus would preach the word and he would help people and he would heal them and he would have compassion on them. In other words, Jesus would react to the world in a way completely contrasting the way the church of the day would act towards the world. And when the people saw that, they were drawn to Jesus. 
But we see the scribes, Pharisees and Sadducees, all these other people who are actually the religious leaders of the day, they would also follow Jesus everywhere he went, but they would follow him for the wrong reasons. They had an agenda and their agenda was to bring Jesus down. And Jesus knew this. And so he sees these scribes arguing with his disciples and he confronts them and he says, what are you discussing with them? You see, what was actually happening at this point was amazing because we see right now in verse 15, the Bible says immediately when they saw him, oh sorry, verse, uh, verse 17 says, Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And he goes on to say, and wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out. These next words rock me to my very core. But they could not. Let's understand what's happening here. You see, what I like to do when I look at these stories, I like to put myself in the story. I like to pretend I'm there. And try to see mentally as well what is happening. You have this multitude of people that are there. And within that multitude, there is a desperate man. A man who is so desperate because his son is possessed by an evil spirit. And the evil spirit causes his son to do things that as a father, it probably horrifies him every time he sees his son in this condition. Just like us, when our children are sick, we get scared, we get worried. If something terrible happens to our kids, as parents, we know how that makes us feel. This father is desperate and he brings his son forward, but Jesus wasn't there. He wanted to bring his son to Jesus, but Jesus wasn't there because he was on the mountain with Peter, James and John. And so he brings his son to Jesus. Jesus isn't there, but who does he find instead? He finds nine of his representatives, nine of his disciples. And he figures these guys work for Jesus. These are Jesus's guys. They should be able to help me. So he brings his son to them and they are not able to heal the boy. You know what's fascinating about this is that when you go just a few chapters previous to Mark chapter 6, you see that the Bible says that Jesus sent the 12 out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. Jesus had already given them the power to do this work. And so it's not a crazy thing that the son would be brought to Jesus' disciples. But the Bible says they could not do it. These words, they rock me to my core. Because now that we understand what was happening in the mind of the disciples before this event took place, we start to unravel and understand why when they were put in a position, in a position of responsibility to heal, in a position of responsibility to help, in a position of responsibility to do the Lord's work, they found themselves unable to do so. Why? We must ask the question, why? And you see, why does this rock me to my core is because I have experienced at moments in my life, in my ministry, where people have come to me, 
needing help, but they're coming to me at a time where I myself am spiritually weak. They're coming to me at a time where I myself am not close to the Lord. And in those moments, you find yourself impotent. You have no power. Not because God has not given you the power, but because because of your unbelief, because of your sin, because of whatever reason, you have disconnected yourself from God. And brothers and sisters, we need to take this seriously because we cannot ever afford to find ourselves in this position. We have a world full of people that need Jesus Christ. We have a world full of people that are suffering and they need God. And when they come to us because we are God's representatives, we are God's people here on earth, we cannot ever find ourselves in this position. They couldn't do it. I was reading The Desire of Ages and what Ellen White writes about this. And she says something fascinating. She says, that what was happening at that moment was that the scribes took advantage of the fact that they were powerless over this evil spirit and they started telling everyone who was there, they have no power to do this. And because they're Jesus's representatives and they have no power, the scribes were putting forward the argument and the accusation that Jesus and his disciples were nothing more than a bunch of phonies. You can't trust them. God forbid the world comes to us one day in need of help. And they find us just like this. What are they going to say? There's no power. I hear testimonies of people all the time that say, I was seeking the Lord and I went to a church to try to find God, but I went there and I felt no power. So I left and I never went back. We need to understand what was at the very core of the reason why the disciples were not able to do this. We'll get to that in a moment. So the man, desperate, brings forward his son. He throws him at the feet of Jesus. And the evil spirit takes over and it convulses him. And he says, I needed help, but they could not help me. Jesus' response is this. O faithless generation, he says, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? He says, bring him to me. We need to ask ourselves a question this morning, church. When Jesus says, O faithless generation, who is he speaking to? Is he speaking to the scribes and Pharisees that obviously do not believe in the fact that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah and what he is able to do? Is he speaking to the man who brought the son and laid him before Jesus' feet? Is he speaking to the multitudes that are there that were listening to the arguments of the scribes and were starting to believe them that these guys were indeed phonies? Or was he speaking to his disciples? Church, who was he speaking to? He was speaking to every single person that was present there that day. And it's an incredible thing to realize that Jesus would look out at a multitude of people and not find faith in the heart of anyone standing in front of him. Church, if Jesus was to come here this morning, 
and stand in front of us. Is this what he would say? Would he say, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? You see, this seems like really tough words from Jesus, doesn't it? We don't usually find Jesus speaking in this manner, let alone when he's speaking to the people he's trying to reach. But you see, there is something that's happening that is really affecting Jesus to the point where he speaks this way. And we need to understand what that thing is. There's something that Jesus does not see that is what really is at the heart of all the issues that are taking place there that morning. These words seem very strong, but there's a reason why Jesus is making it clear how big of a problem faithlessness really is. You see, when you go through the Gospels, you start to see that the number one issue Jesus has with his disciples and his followers is unbelief. When you go through the Old Testament and you look at the history of Israel, you see that the number one issue that Israel has is unbelief. We can turn around and say, no, Israel's biggest issue was disobedience. I want to tell you that the heart of disobedience is unbelief. Unbelief is what leads to disobedience. When they worshipped the golden calf at Mount Sinai, disobedience, they did that because they did not believe in what God was doing for them. That is what led them to worship the golden calf. And so Jesus, understanding the seriousness of unbelief, he looks out at everyone and he says, why don't you believe? How much more do I have to do for you to believe? How many more miracles do I have to do in your life? How many times do I have to clearly show you my leading? How many times do I have to bring you through the wilderness? Get you through life's biggest problems and you still don't believe. And he says to the man, bring the son to me. Bring him to me. Because even though Jesus could see nothing but unbelief, he also saw a poor little boy who was suffering. And he had compassion over that boy. And he said, bring the boy to me. The Bible says, verse 20, Then they brought him to him. And when he, the boy, saw Jesus, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. How many of us can relate to what just happened in this story? How many of us have experienced in our journey when we're convicted, when God has reached us, when we want to make a decision and an effort and a commitment to get closer to Jesus? And as we're trying to get closer to God, we see the devil start to act up in our life. He starts to make things happen. He starts to jump up and down. He starts to cause problems. Nonetheless, as powerful as the devil and his demons may be, Jesus Christ is more powerful. 
Another thing that the spirit of prophecy tells us is profound about this story is that right when this was happening, Ellen White says that all of Jesus, uh, all of the, the angels of light and all of the fallen angels were present. And they were actively at battle for what was happening with this little boy. So the little boy is brought forward and he starts convulsing. He starts foaming at the mouth. And Jesus just watches what's happening. You know, sometimes we might be in a situation in life where the devil is really, really getting the best of us. And we feel like Jesus, you know, we feel like God might be silent. You know, even though Jesus at this moment is allowing the devil to do his thing, don't ever be fooled into thinking that Jesus is not there and he's going he's gonna to get you through. Jesus responds and he says to the father, how long has this been happening to him? The father says from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Have you ever heard of Jesus referred to as the great physician? What's another word for physician? Doctor. The line of questioning from Jesus is actually really amazing here because when you go to the doctor, there are two things that the doctor always asks you, isn't it? What's the very first thing the doctor asks you when you arrive? He asks you, what's wrong, right? Why are you here? Why are you visiting me today? And so you tell the doctor what's wrong, right? What is the immediately next question that the doctors always ask after you reveal to them what's happening? How long has this been happening? You see, this is a beautiful insight into Jesus, the physician. He is asking the father for a medical history of this boy. But this boy's issues aren't just medical, they're spiritual. And he asks the father, how long has this been happening to him? The father says from childhood and often he has thrown him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. The father is just telling Jesus what's happening with this son. And then the father turns around and he says this, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. But if you can do anything, please help us, Jesus. What kind of a question is this? This is a question that we need to understand is a question that is full of doubt. But the word but implies that this thing can go either way. And then he goes on to say, if you can do this. You see, what's amazing about this is we may look at it and we may think, yeah, man, this guy, you know, he kind of messed this whole thing up because when he asked Jesus for help, he wasn't really asking for help in faith. There was a lot of doubt behind the question. But brothers and sisters, how many times do we come to God in the same way? We come to God full of doubt in our hearts. We need God's healing. We need God to help us overcome. We need God to get us through. But we don't even truly believe if it can happen because when the man says this to Jesus, Jesus responds by saying to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. In other words, Jesus is saying, the ball is not in my court. You see, I have the ability to do this. 
The issue is not whether I can do this or not. The issue comes down to, do you believe? And we're like that sometimes. We come to God with enough faith to ask Him to help us, but then we lack faith in whether or not He really is going to do what we need Him to do for us. Jesus responds and He says, If you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. This is where the kryptonite thing comes into play. What's the lesson that we're learning from this story, church, this morning? If we go to Mark chapter 6, and I'm going to put these verses on the screen as well. Mark chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. And it was read just earlier on in the scripture reading. And and for those that were paying attention, maybe you heard something very profound in those verses. Let me ask you a question, church. Can God do anything? Is God all powerful? Is there any power on earth that is able to stop God from doing his will and what he wants to do? You see... I used to think that too, until I read Mark 6, verse 5 and 6. And when I read Mark 6, verse 5 and 6, and I read it in the context of that story, something profound was revealed to me because the Bible says this is when Jesus had gone back to his hometown to preach and he went into the synagogue and people were saying, isn't that the son of Joseph the carpenter? Isn't that James's brother? And they were doubting who he was. And the Bible says this incredible thing in verse 5. It says, now he could do no mighty work there. We need to read that again. The Bible is telling us that God was not able to do something. He was not able to do a mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And then verse 6 tells us why he couldn't do it. He marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. You see, the Bible reveals something incredible to us. Unbelief stops God from doing what he wants to do in your life. How do we know this? Every time Jesus was going to heal somebody, he would always ask them the question, do you believe? Would he not? And when the person would respond in faith, yes, he would heal them. And then he would say very clearly right after, your faith is what has healed you. Your faith is what has made you well. In other words, your faith is what has activated my power to work in your life. And it made me realize something incredible. I started realizing me growing up as a kid and, you know, I used to love the story of Superman. I started remembering that in the story of Superman, there was something that he couldn't be around. It was this thing called kryptonite. Do you know what kryptonite does to Superman in the whole Superman story? People, one of the first responses that people usually share is that kryptonite makes Superman weak. It doesn't actually do that. It does something far worse. It literally takes away his power. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand this morning, God also has a kryptonite. The kryptonite is called unbelief. And this is a powerful thing to understand and think because the next thing that should come to our minds, and this is what happened with me as I was learning this, is that I felt God was saying to me, What things are not happening in your life? What victories are you not experiencing? What 
things and are not made possible, not because I can't do it and I don't want to do it, but simply because you don't believe I can. You see, God has a desire to heal us. God has a desire to restore us. God has a desire to help us. God has a desire to give us the power to overcome and live a righteous life. But when we don't experience these things, it's not because God can't and God doesn't want to. It's because we don't truly believe that he can do it. God has a kryptonite and it's called unbelief. It's incredible that the Bible says he could do no mighty work there. It's telling you clearly, he couldn't do it. Did he want to do it? The Bible tells us, right, God, Jesus has compassion on people everywhere he goes. His desire is to help and to heal and to do great things for people. But he couldn't do it. And the Bible says it was because of unbelief. So when Jesus says to this man, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. This is the moment that this man realized that his unbelief, his lack of faith was preventing his son from being healed. And this is how he responded. The Bible says immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. The moment that he realized that it was his unbelief that was blocking God's power from being manifested. Now let's go back and let's look at what happened with the other nine disciples that could not do that work. Yes, they spent a whole night bickering and murmuring. Yes, they were discouraging. Yes, they were full of doubts. But what was at the core of what they were feeling when this man brought his son to them to be healed? What was at the core of them not being able to do that work? What was it? It was unbelief. When the man brought his son to the other nine disciples to be healed, the Bible said very clearly, did it not? They couldn't do it. Why couldn't they do it? Because they were full of unbelief. I want to encourage you, church. Start making this part of your daily prayer. Every day as you pray to God, ask God to give you more faith. Make this a part of your daily prayer. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, please take the measure of faith that you have given me and grow that measure of faith. Make it bigger, Lord, because we might think that we're good with faith. We might think that we're all there when it comes to faith. But all it takes is for one major difficulty and hardship to come our way and immediately we are revealed with how little faith we truly have. Isn't that true? Let's be honest. When we start to panic and we start to stress and we start to worry, that reveals to us how little faith we truly have. Don't ever get caught up into thinking that you don't need to be asking God every day to give you more faith. Because I need to tell you something if you don't already know it. Faith is the most important, most fundamental thing that you need in the Christian experience. Without faith, Everything else falls apart. Faith is at the core of our whole Christian experience. And knowing that, we must be asking God on a daily basis to increase our faith.
Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. The Bible says when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit and he said to a deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. I don't have the rest of the verses on the screen, but I'll read them out. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly and came out of him and he became as one dead so that many said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. You see, this spiritual battle was so, so profound on this young little boy that it ended up leaving him in a state where he looked like he was dead to the point where people saw him and said, that boy is dead. Just like with us, we can be hit so hard with our spiritual battle sometimes. You know, the devil is relentless. That's why the Bible says he roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And sometimes he devours us. And after a spiritual battle, we are left dead. And sometimes that may cause us in our spiritual uh, journey to even feel like we're spiritually dead. But the Bible says all it took was for Jesus to grab him by the hand. He lifted him back up and he arose. You can be spiritually dead even in church here this morning. You can come to church spiritually dead inside. Because of the spiritual battles you may be facing that nobody knows about. You see, Adventists, we're very good actors. Come on now. Amen. We're very good actors, aren't we? We come to church every Sabbath. Happy Sabbath, brother. Happy Sabbath, sister. God is good all the time. We're very good at putting on appearances. But some of us are going through deep spiritual battles. Some of us are in need of Jesus and an encounter with him. And we need to know this because the Bible says, even if you're feeling spiritually dead, all it takes is for Jesus to give you his hand. All you need to do is hold on to his hand. And today, this morning, he will lift you right back up and bring you back to life. The question is, though, do you believe? Do you believe? The Bible goes on to say, and when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? They were embarrassed. These were very proud men. They were embarrassed. And they say to Jesus, Jesus, what happened? Why why couldn't we do this? And then Jesus says, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. In other words, guys, you know that whole night, you know what you were doing. You should have been praying and fasting. You know how you were bickering and murmuring and and speaking in unbelief. You should have been praying and fasting for strength. The spiritual battle is real. We can't afford to find ourselves impotent. We need to be connected to Jesus to have that power. He had already given them given them the power over unclean spirits. He's given us the power too. Do you believe it though? He has already given you the victory. Do you believe it though? I'm going to finish with a quote from the book, The Desire of Ages. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. 
How many a sin-burdened soul has echoed that prayer? And to all, the pitying Savior's answer is, If you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. It is faith that connects us with heaven and brings us strength for coping with the powers of darkness. In Christ, God has provided means for subduing every sinful trait and resisting every temptation, however strong. But many feel that they lack faith and therefore they remain away from Christ. You know, look, the reality is, is that you can be so overcome by something for so long that you can get to the point in your heart where you stop believing that it is possible for you to overcome this thing. Why do I know that's true? Because I've experienced that myself. You can be so overwhelmed by so many things that are just continuously there and have always been there and we can get to a point where we feel like God just can't do anything. This is where we need to remember these things. This is why these stories are so important because God wants to respond to us the same way he responded to that man. If you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. Let these souls in their helpless unworthiness cast themselves upon the mercy of their compassionate Savior. Look not to self. It's one of the biggest mistakes we do, isn't it? We look at self. And look, when you look at self, self isn't pretty. Remember a good friend of mine would say to me, you know, he, he put this, you know, and I know he, he got it from somebody else, but he would often say this and he would say, you know, when I look at myself, all I can think is, how can I possibly be saved? And he says, but when I look at Jesus, all I can think is, how could I possibly be lost? Look not to self, but to Christ. He who healed the sick and cast out demons when he walked among men is the same mighty redeemer today. But church, do we believe this? Because we look at these stories, we open the Bible and we see the amazing things that Jesus did while he was on earth. But somehow we come to this point in our minds that he did that then, maybe it was a different time then, maybe it was because he was physically here then. Whatever reason we make ourselves believe he could do it then, but he can't do it now. She reminds us that the same mighty Redeemer who did those amazing miracles back then is the same mighty Redeemer today. But... Do you believe? That's what it comes down to. Do you believe it though? Faith comes by the word of God. Then grasp his promise. He that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. John 6, 37. Cast yourself at his feet with the cry. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And what she says next is amazing. You can never perish while you do this. Never. You can never perish while you do this. And she makes a point to say again, never. Because Ellen White also understood that the most fundamentally important thing for us in our Christian experience is faith. And as long as we continue to come to Christ, and as long as we continue to ask Him to help our unbelief, to grow our faith, to help us to be stronger in faith, as long as we continue to do this, she says, we can never, never perish. I want to leave you with this question this morning. What miracles 
has Jesus not been able to do in your life? Not because he can't. Not because he doesn't want to. But because you don't believe. May our response be, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Amen. Invite everyone to bow their heads. If the word of God has spoken to you this morning, and you feel in your heart your desire to ask God to increase your faith, that you've been convicted of your need to plead with Him for more faith, that you can recognize that maybe there are things that haven't happened, maybe there are things that you haven't been able to do, and it is because your unbelief, and you want to ask God to fix that this morning. As every head is bowed and every eye is closed and we're about to pray, I just want to invite you, if you want to say to God this morning, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, I just invite you to raise your hand with me as we pray. Father God, you see the hands that are raised here this morning. We are raising these hands, Lord, because we need you. We are raising these hands, Lord God, because we realize and we recognize, Father, that we need more faith. Father God, help us, Lord. Give us the faith that we lack. Forgive us for doubting, Lord. Lord, there are so many things in this world, so many experiences, so many different things that cause us to doubt, Lord. Father, forgive us. Help us to have faith in you and your word. Lord, help us to experience those miracles that you're longing to do for us, but have not been able to, not because you can't and not because you don't want to, but because we have not believed. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was made available by the Watara Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit waitarachurch.org.au. Today what the morrow may bring Give shadow or sunshine or rain The Lord I know ruleth for everything And all of my worry is vain Living by faith Yes, living by faith In Jesus above In Jesus above Trusting confide Trusting confiding in His great love in his great love From all I'm safe In his sheltering arm His sheltering arm I'm living by faith I'm living by faith And feel no alarm Feel no alarm Though tempests may blow And the storm clouds arise Obscuring the brightness of life I'm never alarmed at the overcast skies A master looks on at the strife Living by faith Yes, living by faith In Jesus above In Jesus above Trusting confide Trusting confiding In His great love Yes, in His great love From all harm's sake 
sheltering on. I'm sheltering on. I'm living by faith. I'm living by faith and feel no alarm. I know that he safely will carry me through, no matter what evils betide. Why should I then care, though the tempest may blow, if Jesus walks close to my side? Living by faith, yes, living by faith, in Jesus above, in Jesus above, trusting confide, trusting confiding in great love, yes, in his great love. From all harm's safe, in his sheltering arm, in sheltering arm. I'm living by faith, I'm living by faith, and feel no alarm, feel no alarm. Our Lord will return to this earth some sweet day, our troubles will then all be o'er. The Master so gently will lead us away beyond that blessed heavenly shore. Living by faith, yes, living by faith in Jesus above, in Jesus above, trusting confide, trusting confiding in His great love, yes, in His great love. From our harm's Sheltering on, is sheltering on. I'm living by faith. I'm living by faith and feel no alarm. Feel no alarm. Bowing my heart before you, I worship and adore. for Balanced Living with Vicki Griffin. Who can I trust? We are living in times of increased stress and economic uncertainty. Betrayals and failed relationships cause a loss of trust. Trust is defined as confidence or calm reliance in the ability, strength, or dependability of someone or something. Trust optimism, and freedom from chronic anxiety yield valuable physical and mental health benefits. Young children are naturally trusting, and those who believe that people can change and improve are more forgiving and able to trust again when wrongs are committed. 
Children, youth, and adults who lack trust have increased levels of loneliness and social isolation linked to depression and poor health. The healthiest social relationships are marked by trust, cooperation, and fairness. Trust is good medicine. Trusting attitudes stimulate oxytocin, a hormone linked with lactation, social bonding, and compassion. Attitudes of trust, compassion, hope, and optimism are directly linked to improved immune health, better pregnancies, pain management, and improved cancer outcomes. Low optimism and high pessimism increases the risk for disease and premature death. Chronic mistrust is linked to significantly reduced immune function and suppressor of helper and T-cell activity. Increased trust is linked to better overall health and positive social ties. Trusting relationships with healthcare providers improves medical outcomes. And team attitudes of trust in the workplace are linked not only with less sickness, absenteeism, and accidents, but also improved service. Trust is hardwired in young children and is vital to individual health and social stability. This trait comes from God. His character shows us how to forgive and reestablish trust. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. We can depend on and trust God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without evil. Just and upright is he. Deuteronomy 32, 4. Here we see a picture of a God who embodies every trait we can trust. And because he is God, we can trust him completely. Love and trust. God invites us to trust him because he loves us just as we are. And we love because God first loved us. 1 John 4.19 God is love. It is the essence of his nature, a nature that he wants to instill within us. All love originally comes from God. Love flows from God to us, which in turn enables us to love him back. This relationship then frees us to have a pure God-given love for ourselves and others. Only when we have pure love for God and ourselves can we truly love our neighbors. This amazing flow of love promotes life and healing. Healing trust. When we accept God's unconditional love for us and holy trust in His power to transform our lives, we are energized to take better care of ourselves in order to reflect His character to a needy world. Difficult times come to all, and there is suffering and injustice to cope with in this life. Because of sin, Jesus tells us in John 16, to expect this very thing, but only for a time. He will make all things right very soon. He will create a new earth without the stain of sin, and you can be a part of it. Revelation 12. 10 to 12. The more you get to know him, the more you will trust him. He will make you strong and wise and give you peace and even joy in this life beset with so many trials. 
sacrifice, and trust. Author Charles Kalman noted, You can trust the man who died for you. The Bible reveals that God's love for man is so great that he came to this world to reveal himself through Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 3.16 Jesus came as the Word made flesh. He created us, died to redeem us, and will give us power to be like him. John 1.10 Invited to Trust It has been said that you can trust the Lord too little, but you can never trust Him too much. We can lean on God to guide us through all of life's challenges. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own judgment. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a hiding place for us. Psalm 62, 8. Faith and trust. The Bible describes faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews eleven thirteen. It is trusting in advance what we may only understand in reverse. Faith is that spiritual anchoring which enables a person to weather the storms of life because they trust God's promise that He will supply every need according to His riches in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19 Faith is looking at the situation through God's eyes as recorded in His Word, the Bible. Faith is power for the journey, not a lucky charm for perfect results. See Hebrews 11. Faith grows strong when battling through obstacles and trials. This could be why Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, sometimes leads us through difficulties rather than removing them from us. Hebrews 12.2 It's time to trust. Although we cannot know the future, we can know that God wants only what is best for us. He invites us to trust Him. Look to God and allow His love and mercy to calm you. Look to His Word, the Bible, to instruct you. Pray. Trust in Christ, your Redeemer, to save you. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God have I put my trust. I will not fear. Psalm 56, 3 and 4. You've been listening to Balanced Living, presented by Vicki Griffin. It's been a pleasure bringing you this program here on 3ABN Australia Radio.